Now, at some point, all of these sponsors are going to have a tipping point that goes, you know what, I'm spending more time apologizing and justifying what I'm doing versus me actively wanting to make a positive impact in sport and sport making a positive impact in society. One's going to balance out the other and suddenly you're going to have people going, you know what, this is too much like hard work. Hello and welcome to another episode of Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. Coca-Cola and the Olympics is sport's most enduring commercial relationship. But how does it work on the inside? How relevant is the Games to today's Coke drinker? Is the Olympic top programme still fit for purpose? And how can the IOC balance its promises around sustainability with the reality of hosting massive multi-sport events and sponsored by companies such as Coca-Cola, which is one of the biggest producers of plastic in the world? As Vice President of Olympic Assets and Marketing, James Williams was Coca-Cola's man on the ground at three summer games, starting in London 2012 through Rio 2016 and on to the COVID-delayed Tokyo Olympics in 2021. What he's got to say talks to many of the big themes that dominate the sports business conversation today. Helping me ask the questions are my regular buy-side co-hosts Sally Hancock and Sean Watling. Unofficial Partner is the leading podcast for the business of sport a mix of entertaining and thought-provoking conversations with a who's who of the global industry. To join our community of listeners, sign up to the weekly Unofficial Partner newsletter or follow us on Twitter at Unofficial Partner. The ESSA Awards awaits me this evening my tuxedo. It normally gets an airing for the Sport Industry Awards, and I look like a fat waiter. Which is not—it's <laughs> not the look I'm going for. But did you manage to get know. the beer stains out, Richard? I know. Well, it's just—it's you know, so depressing. <laughs> but it must be said, Richard, at the moment you're looking very ethereal because you're all black, yeah. and there's this sort of face in the middle. It's—I um, will take ethereal, uh, Sally. Thank you. I'm very—I'm yes, very happy with ethereal. There's a sort of Kate yeah. Bush aspect to ethereal. I, my mind goes to Kate Bush again. I, I don't mind that comparison at all. So. We're back with the buy side and we're going to talk to Sally and Sean in due course. So hello. I would say hello first of all. Just I like, I like to get a voice on. So Sean, hello. 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 And Sally, hello. Hi there. And we're going to talk to James. Hello. Well, it's good to have you. Good to have you join us in our, our gang talking about sponsorship. So let's talk about you first of all. Let's use this as a way in because we're obviously going to talk about Coca-Cola and we're going to talk about its relationship to the big ones. FIFA and the IOC and you know so you can't get any bigger top table I like the cliche of big ticket sponsorships those are that's always a phrase that I always use but you can't get any bigger than than Coke from this perspective and we're going to get into the detail but how did you just tell us how you got into this game what was the route in to sport and your relationship to it I guess probably started quite a few many moons ago when I started my my career in marketing so when I started agency side and, and one of my first kind of forays into the sports world was probably showing my age was the Worthington Cup run back back hey. ago. Spurs won that by the way I think at some oh, point well I think a few people won that a few times but but uh yeah it was that was my first thing it was kind of going around for that and and being part of that and seeing what that kind of made a difference into a lot of the communities that we went and followed. And then I guess it evolved over time. So different clients, whether it was Orange and Telecoms back back when text messaging was still quite new. 
Oh, I'm really dating myself on this one. So, uh, <laughs> How old are you? <laughs> not, not that old, I hope. <laughs> I like to think that's still young. But uh, so then, and that evolved, I think, through Carling as well, some of that back in the day. And then it's agency side stuck and moved into Coca-Cola, which is where we worked on um, and created the Winner Player campaign, which if you remember that with the Football League sponsorship and, and based on a great insight. And I think, for me, it was just the power that you saw with, with sports being able to really impact brand and all the sales side of it, but also the engagement side of it, which was fantastic. And then a couple of years later, Coke very kindly asked me to see if I wanted to come and join them. And then it evolved from there. I worked across many brands from kind of, you know, the Coke Zeros, where we did the first Wayne Rooney's Street Striker series with Sky, which back then was kind of content marketing way before... I guess it was a bit of a, a Netflix thing, but just way before its time. So, and again, that evolved through different ways. There was stuff that we did with Powerade and, and various different things. And I've always found that the sports industry has such a power to add with that fan and brand engagement that it can deliver on so many different levels. When you get it connected in the right way, it, it's a super powerful piece. And then I've moved on to the Olympics. So 2012 was my... Um, my first kind of Olympics, uh, where Sally and I actually worked together. We, I looked after the torch relay, ran around the country for the best part of 70 days, getting very wet for most of it, except for the two weeks at the beginning and two weeks at the end. Again, delivering fantastic results, not only from that commercial side, but also on you know, some of the slightly softer side of it and also in really supporting back then, which was youth and, and engaging with youth back back in the day. And then very fortunately was uh, moved to Brazil, Rio de Janeiro. So did four years, four and a half years in Rio, managing the kind of the games and sponsorship and the marketing for that, both locally and working closely with the global team to really start to drive much more of that impact of the sponsorship co-sponsored it for many many years so it's about how do you move that on and then finally and more recently tokyo so did did five and a half years in tokyo got a bonus year for the pandemic which was which was fun and made it so much more of a an entertaining way to <laughs> deliver games i guess on so many different levels and good and bad on a number of different levels so I guess being involved with it for many years, it's a it's a passion of mine. And, and for me, it's about the impact that it can have on so many different levels, not only from a brand side, but on so many different levels in terms of society and different things like that. Which do you think was the most successful games for you, James, out of interest? Ooh. Well, I guess, I mean, it was interesting because if you look at it as a total games for Coca-Cola as a brand or whereas an individual. So for London on the Torch Relay, that was one of the most successful relays or is still the most successful relay for Coke. It was in terms of, you know, commercial returns, consumer engagement. We did multiple events. And so that for me was always going to be a personal kind of it's your own home country and things like that. But if you look at it now, and and Tokyo was actually Coke's most successful Olympics on record because of the structure of the way that I built the legacy plans and in, integrated those across the whole of the business, we delivered the highest level of commercial returns and, and not for just the period, it was pre and post the highest marketing engagement scores. And the bit for me that was the big piece is how we integrated ESGs. So fundamentally, we shifted that for Coke from where we were ranked in the Nikkei brand ESG ranking, which was 38, and we moved up to fifth because of the way we'd integrated that and everything we do. So I think purely from a 
from a corporate point of view, Tokyo would definitely be the big one that made the biggest impact. And James, when, when you said about Tokyo being seen as corporate is the most successful, is there a kind of a global measurement of how the Olympics is performing, for example, or is it more a question of comparing individual metrics from different games? I don't think there's a there's a specific global metric, but you'll you'll see that and and Tokyo is always going to be a challenging one because of the pandemic. So there was no there was no audience, there was no fans, and also globally didn't have the same impact that it would have done normally. So different metrics, you've got a global piece, how many markets will execute it, what's the impact on sales from that point of view versus in the local market. So when I look at it very much from a Japan lens, we created very much a portfolio approach, so multiple products and things like that. We engaged different parts of the business and integrated them all into one clear direction, which allowed us to give you know, commercial returns, give the impact, but also start to to really deliver on things that are important, which is much more the purpose and the giving back and the, the things that are important to consumers these days. When for Tokyo, it was diversity and inclusion. How do you drive that? How do you make a decent societal impact with the power of the games? So in terms of a measurement, is there anything that's consistent? Oh, is the simple answer. Something you always work on because every games provides different opportunities And also the brands are in very different places. So every two years, you've got different brands in different places, different levels of engagement, different things that you're trying to change. So the objectives for what you're trying to deliver change over that period of time as well. I'm interested to know, James, about how sponsorship is actually viewed by the business. I mean, is it seen as integral to it or is it seen as something that's kind of has to be done in an effort to perhaps avoid other competitors coming into that space? I mean, I could give you my point of view kind of now, I mean, given that I'm now not working for them. But I think think it's always been a massive part of it, of the business. If you think about the longevity of the many, many years that it's been part of, you know, the the Olympic sponsorship is 1994 years, I think now. FIFA was one of the first ones as well. And you look at these long term kind of relationships. Yes, it's it's embedded into what we do. Or the thing is, is I think for the future, that's more of a challenge. I think if you look at the last run of some of the big mega events, that becomes more and more challenging is do they add the positive impact that they should be having? And that's because of some of the countries it's gone to, various you know problems that have been created. I think that is going to put pressure on whether this should be. And and I I do remember the conversation with you know with senior member of the leadership team of like James, you need to prove that this does start to give a return on investment. And and I went into Tokyo going, you know what, the Olympics does provide lots of different things, whether that's tangible or intangible. But you've got to find a way to actually deliver this because it's going to become a question. And that's why the way that I designed Tokyo was why at the end of it, we can go, hey, look, this is exactly what we set out to do. This is where we started. This is where we ended. So I think more and more, it's going to become a challenge as to do these things give back in the right way. And I think now you see a lot more movement towards music and, and especially the kind of digital world and, and things like that. So We'll see. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? These conversations around Visa versus MasterCard, Coke versus Pepsi, it's very binary, isn't it? It's because of the scale of of those two, or you know, your competitor and yourself, one or the other most of the time. Yeah, and I, don't, I suppose there probably is a bit of it. And I think that's to think that we you only do it to block. I think it would take a long time for another brand to come in, take over one of these sponsorships and have the recognition. I mean, 
Christ, Coke's so synonymous with sponsorship. I think even in a lot of the sponsorship trackings, there are things that people say that Coke sponsors that they don't because it's so synonymous. So I think there's other things. There's such latent kind of pieces on that. And But that comes down to what's the objective of what you're trying to do as the brand. So if you look at all these other brands, actually, what are they trying to get out of these sponsorship deals moving forward? And I think that's where you see sport and sponsorship at the moment. A real point, an inflection point at the moment is, where do you start to get these things working for you as a brand in a different way, depending on what the objective is? And therefore, you're putting serious dollar signs in because these the sponsorship deals are not going down in price. There's, there's, they're only going up. And then you've got to activate. And then you've got everything on top. And it's becoming harder and harder, I think. So I think at this point, there's, there is an inflection point that I think there's got to be some serious changes across the kind of industry and how we approach these things. But you'd, uh, James, I know that kind of Coke reviews and it's only good practice to review the sponsorship, but you, you'd really stu- struggle to step out, though, wouldn't you? Because, you know, every the World Cup, Olympics, kind of a three month window, massive, all the distributors, all the supermarket partners, which is so important to you expecting it. You'd have to fill a, such a massive gap. And also, you know, well, so and also you'd lose that sense of just real global presence once every two years or once more than that with the Winter Olympics, which so, I, I, you know, I see that I see it's a necessary thing to review. And it's obviously good practice to consider why we're doing this. But you couldn't possibly leave, could you? I'm sure there's probably a few people having that conversation these days. I mean, the good thing, I suppose, with the IOC is it's, it's only every 10 years you have to have that conversation. So which I suppose does make it a lot easier because you probably overturn two CMOs at that point. You might even change the CEO. So you've got a very different perspective on that. So I do think you have to line up as to how you do that. And I think this is where more of the future within sports sponsorship is about how do you come in and potentially play, plan to exit? I mean, you look at the Premier League at the moment with Barclays and things like that. There's some great stuff as where they to moved away from title and then all the grassroots stuff they're doing and the diversity and inclusion stuff that they're doing is fantastic. And that's where you've got to evolve that relationship with that with that entity or that that rights holder to be more in line with what you're trying to do as a business. So there comes a point. Again, one of the key things is what's the objective? I mean, you know, why do you do this? Why do you sponsor it? And and I know and I every every market that I would go and move into, so whether it was Brazil or Tokyo, I would the local sponsors would come in as soon as I arrived and they'd hear I arrived and they'd, oh James, 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 we want to talk to you, sit down and talk to you. So what do we do? I'm like, what do you mean? What do you do? What do we do? We just bought we just bought a locals partnership. Like, okay, great. What's your objective? We, we, we haven't got an objective. Really? You just you just signed off a hundred and fifty million dollar deal and you don't have an objective? You know, that's questionable. So when you look at that from a local deal uh, luckily it's not coming back to that local city so it's not going to be a problem for a number of years because all the people that were involved will have left but that's where you've got to get into why do people get into this the levels of sponsorship and what are they trying to get out of it as a brand what's really going to help you deliver on those objectives as a brand for you to continue the sponsorship Mm. But earlier on, when we're talking about, you know, Coke globally and its objectives, and you answered in quite broad terms in terms of allowing you to connect, I'd be really curious to know, you know, what is in the almost like the the, the business case for continued involvement? Is it just a collection of the achievements of the past, uh, you know, the, the past Olympics? You've got the huge heritage, but what actually, you know, what are the key arguments to stay in? 
Is it just expressed as getting, you know, a, a global opportunity to to connect with the world? Well, I don't know. I don't think these days you can get away with objectives as broad and as un- it's not really trackable. And that goes in and out anyway, because you look at different different games will have a different engagement level on different and um, different levels. So I think that's so in these days, it's got to be are you driving sales? Are you driving return on investment? Can you actually commercialize what this is and whether it's a global sponsorship, so you're doing this in the top 32 markets or whatever, or you're trying to do it on a local level, what's it trying to drive and change? Now, the problem is when you sign a 10-year deal, is I'll tell you that the objectives will change over that period. So how do you measure success at the end? Well, it's hard to say because you did a, you had a good year and a bad year. And then you've got all the, the external influences into that. So, okay, you can look at so, for example, London, it was a recession during London. So did it impact our sales at that point? Simple answer is probably not as much as we'd like to. You know, you looked at different times and there's all these different changes that are happening. So can you say, does it work? Yes or no. Over a 10 year period, pass. Is this about recruiting new consumers? Yes. Is it about building more, you know, a base of portfolio drinkers? That's got to be the target because ultimately that's what the goal is. You want to sell more something, whatever that is. Does it? Can I just ask a question about, because you mentioned there about the tenure, and I've always wondered about the impact of CMOs as they come in, or even CEO. You know, you've got this relationship, you know, as you mentioned, FIFA and AIC are just, you know, outlive the CMO, obviously. If I'm a CMO coming in, do I come at this? Do I test it in some way? Do I ask those questions? Or do I just assume that this is a relationship that sets down. I know you, you know, there are moments when it gets renewed and there's some interesting stuff around the Chinese milk brand, which I can never pronounce. But what is the scope there? And do individual CMOs have any impact on this or does it just run in sort of isolation? The, the simple answer is, yeah, of course they have impact in it because they drive the budgets that drive the global campaigns and, and how that's built and what's, what resources put behind that at a certain time. So, so yeah, if they're not, a big in big favor of it then they're not going to put the kind of teams on it to build the kind of campaigns that need to work globally they'll they'll reduce that down because they want to put their money into something else that they're trying to do and there's examples of that over over time and i think so do they impact into it no unless they are the person at that point that when the renewal's up and they go okay does this work here's my brand objectives this is what i'm trying to do for five years is this going to help us deliver? And if it does, great. But if it doesn't, then, and again, it's going to be a brave and bold TMO that goes, you know what, we should get out because people are going to question. But again, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is the legacy of that you can't get out? And actually, could you take that money and invest that money more effectively or efficiently somewhere else? And and that's where I think now these days where people are getting a lot more detailed in their ROI lot more detailed on how do you measure and track this how do you see what the impact actually was then i think that's going to start to answer that question because then it's not an emotional question then it's then it's based on fact you know okay did this do this yes okay great go do it what's the price tag it's this much so and and i think that's one of the challenges again with sponsorship at the moment is how does that evolve because as as society evolves and as brands evolve and objectives evolve, does the sponsorship deal evolve with them? And that's part of the challenge with rights holders is at the moment, it's all cookie cutter. It's like, oh, here's everything you get. 
we've signed the deal. This is what you get done. See you, see you in three years, see you in five years, see you in 10 years. And, and that's not going to get to a point. This is where I think with some of the new kind of brands coming into sports sponsorship, they're a lot more diligent on what those results are, what those objectives are. Does it work? Yes or no. If not, move out. And, and that's where there's got to be an, evo- an evolution, in my mind anyway. Would you include any of the the new top partners in that kind of category in terms of having a radically new uh, kind of more focused approach to to partnership? Yeah, and um, and also I think also then you get into this kind of weird weird world of of categories. So I think Alibaba is the cloud sponsor. So what what is that, and how does that work, and how does that impact on everyone else? So I definitely think on a lot of these new ones that are coming in. Yes, I think they've got a challenge with some of the older ones coming up. I think the IOC is going to be in for probably a challenging four years, but in a very different way to they've been challenged in the last four years in terms of the ones that are renewing and and this kind of world and actually what are the things that they're giving back and everyone seems to look forward and goes oh but we've got a great run of Paris and and Milan and then LA actually I think that's just going to bring a whole host of different problems to the ones that we've had previously so yeah I do think because where do they see this and it's what you're sold when you buy it and, and this is the challenge, I think, with sponsorship is what you buy at the time is like, OK, great. And if you're a B2B party, you're going to go, great, you can have access to all the other sponsors. And if you're trying to switch something that's quite fundamental to a big organization, can you come in and change that? They might not get the return on investment that they're getting from the B2B. And therefore, is this worth the millions of dollars that they're investing in? You said about new challenges, James, in terms yeah, of, the, you know, because we've had the big new markets that we've been into, the IOC has been into. And I kind of I've got a sense of what you mean. Do you want to, could you expand a little bit in terms of the new challenges that can be faced in the mature markets of you know Italy and France and the US? Well, I think you know they are going to have different. I think for me there'll be a lot more. There's a lot more opportunities for different types of protests and things like that. I think you're going to have lots more. You know, when we look and everyone's looking towards LA, which I think will be fantastic, but the US has challenges within this. If you look at somewhere like London, it was, you know, became the Fat Olympics and all this. This puts pressure on a lot of places. It puts pressure on the brands that are sponsoring it. And are they supporting it? And therefore, you're drawn into a conversation that you maybe don't want to because it's supporting it in other ways. And people will use that in much more of a, a bigger way to use this as a showcase for different messages. So I think, you know, the same Paris, Milan, I think they'll all be fantastic games and I think they they will be, but I do think it will have a different level of challenges in terms of the protests, what will be bringing to the table, how that will impact the sponsors and drag sponsors into conversations that maybe they weren't, they, this is not what they got into it for. We had that little chat, didn't we, earlier on, and it's uh, about Tokyo and the kind of some of the hidden surprises that were there. And you mentioned, we, we mentioned the Kasumi Gaseki golf course, which was chosen to be the, the venue. And then it was discovered that it didn't actually have, allow private members to be women. And so, so two kind of things coming out of that is one is how does a, a big organization really deal with these, these issues? That's kind of, I'm not going to say a relatively small one, but it was, how, but how do you deal, how do you deal with those issues? And secondly, how do you kind of anticipate them going in? Yeah, <laughs> well, that's a, that's a great question. How do you anticipate them? I think, I mean, it's a, you always have an idea of what you're going to get into in each of the countries. So there'll be a good underlying of where the challenges are. Now, from a personal point of view, I think 
the rights holders should do a much better job of the due diligence into the CCs and places that are getting awarded. And those should be shared with the sponsors so that they can have a bit of a heads up, one. And two, maybe you can start to drive change. So if you think Japan's a good example. So if you think a lot of diversity and inclusion, that was a challenge within within that culture and in that market. And this was what I did off the back of it was actually we drove a lot of the campaign and some of the assets we created, the placard bearers being a great example of the, the opening and ceremonies, was we used that to really educate and drive a much better awareness of diversity and inclusion. So you use that to try and impact change within within the country. So I can say that not because of what Coke did, I think it was also to do with We the 15 and the IPC. But there was a 15% increase in awareness across Japan about diversity and inclusion over that period of the game. So that was because of multiple activities that were taking place. So the thing is, we did that off the back. If you could do that collaboratively and smarter as both rights holder and sponsors, you can have a fundamental better impact on changing certain pieces in society for the better. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Makes me think, you know, partly what I understood was Coke had this, the model used to be they used to have their central team with Thierry and Emmanuel, and they would kind of educate markets to to bring bring on their own GM, as, you know, happened in, in the UK. And the pattern was, the model was to develop those competencies internally. But but obviously you carried on and then you effectively, I mean, I don't know if you GM in, in, in Rio or at least having a huge degree of authority and similarly in Tokyo. So it, I'm kind of curious why the model changed. And, and secondly, I think there's something there possibly about you being in Coca-Cola in Tokyo and your awareness of diversity and inclusion. Because I spoke to a lot of Japanese brands in Tokyo and they were not going to be driving that you know you know the kind of saying they've got about if you're a nail that stands out gets hammered down you don't do anything which is going to set you apart yeah i think yeah yeah i think they're probably we were we went i think towards the end and i think the we the 15 campaign was a good example of how we started to get other japanese brands in to support the campaign i remember speaking yeah. to the ipc and them saying hey would you support this i'm like yeah we're, we're all over it and then others came on and that was always one of the things with coke is oh what's coke gonna do and then others kind of follow suit in terms of the answer to the model the model never really changed because there was always it was always people moving so the idea was always to lift and shift you know experience into the market so you would have the kind of helicopter from from atlanta and they would move people. I think it was just I became quite consistent over a number of games, which does help because it allows that relationship both with the IOC and the local organizing committee. You add value to that to them because you you share knowledge. And I think that's the other point of it. It's so important to share that knowledge to because whether you like it or not, the, the Olympics is about you know, it's not just about us being successful. You, Everyone's got to be successful. And, and Sally and I will have done this from the Torch Relay in London. Yeah. It's only successful if all of the sponsors are successful. And that's about what you're driving as a greater greater impact or a greater you're doing better rather than the kind of slightly selfish kind of thing. It's just about me. So I don't think the model massively changed. I think, well, now now not as much experience, but uh, but yeah, it's the same same kind of idea. Moving on to a, a, another topic, James, I know it's something that you will have had, no doubt, endless conversations with the IOC and the IPC around, but uh, but around sustainability and the impact of that. I know that's been, 
you know, for London, it wasn't, dare I say, as hot a topic as it is now by a long way. In Paris, it's likely to be a very different games on that basis. What, what do you think the IOC's role is in sort of making the games more sustainable? Yes, I do have a point of view. And do I think, so currently, I think the IOC is very good about making this the organising, the local organising committee's problem rather than them building a long-term problem or a long-term solution to the problem. So for them, it's very easy to kind of go, well, it's not us, it's the, it's the organising committee's problem to solve, not ours, because we, we, we're up here and we helicopter across the top. And a good example of that is Paris, actually. If you look at it for Paris, Paris has put out some really good, they came out, they went, you know what, we want to make this the plastic-free games. And all credit to Paris, you know, it's a lofty goal. The reality is, is that realistic? Now, if the IOC really wanted to make fundamental changes in sustainability, you want to write a 10-year plan that takes in all of the games in that 10 years and go, each time we're going to reduce our plastic by 25% every single game, because then by the time we get to the 10, you know, we get to LA, we're now plastic free. So the difference is, is now Paris is having to roll back some of these big kind of targets and go, you know what, sorry, we can't deliver this because, and that's not because of the want of trying. That's the clear thing. Like there are lots of people that do want to make this more sustainable, but without the clear leadership as to how we're going to get there, how do you get there together over a period of time is where you're going to get to a solution. So do I think the IOC, and I, you know, this isn't about, you know, me, I think the IOC does phenomenal and great things in many different places. Do I think they need to be more involved in that longer term kind of, targets of how you change this over time than they potentially yeah. are now yes i have a really interesting yeah. point that <laughs> i've not really thought about it in that way before in that those cycles it, you know you get out of political cycles you get out of decision making cycles even corporate cycles which can be sort of very short termist the ioc if it was going to take this seriously centrally does have a long term lens it's one of the few constituencies that can write a 12-year plan with some confidence, presumably. Yeah, I mean, you look at the, the danger because you look at the Winter Olympics. What was the recent stat? I heard that by 2050, there will only be five cities in the world that can host the Winter Olympics. That's a big problem. So you need to be part of that solution and quickly and be partnering with the right people to drive that con constantly. And they've got some great sponsors that can help that in terms of hydrogen all these kind of things but you've got to connect it all you can't just kind of sit back and, and watch it and hope that it all comes together because that's just not how you're going to drive change you've got to play an active role i believe anyway i'm sure they probably feel that they but uh, yeah just thinking sort of more broadly around the sort of impact of major events generally there was so much discussion around the issues surrounding the world cup in qatar human rights issues the environmental impact of the construction and everything else how do you adjust or integrate or deal with those issues because you're always find somebody somewhere with a complaint or an issue about the staging of an event but recently that's really become much more polarized and i think qatar and the world cup was an example of that does it impact what the sort of decisions that an organization that coke makes 100% I think I, I would say I'm well versed in what we call IMCR training instant management crisis resolution so so the problem is is that the more you have that the more it takes away from your ability to execute and activate whatever the event is or whatever the sponsorship is 
Because if you're trying to play, like, I, don't, I can't say this, or I need to say this, you're constantly coming up with, because that's what's going to be the question from the media. Like, well, how do you support this? What do you do about this? And, and I think that's where it takes away from it. And I think this is where we start to lose the power of sport and sports sponsorship because it's getting lost in the politics, in the corruption, in the abuse, and all this kind of stuff. It's lost where it has its most power. And that's the difference. You've got to understand where you're playing into or not. And as a sponsor, this is why it's going to become more challenging for rights holders. Because, I mean, if you look at and a good example of this, I'll use the Canada hockey last year, lost $24 million worth of sponsorship in a month because of what was going on in the abuse within that federation. So they sponsors walked away. Now, at some point, all of these sponsors are going to have a tipping point that goes, you know what, I'm spending more time apologizing and justifying what I'm doing versus me actively wanting to make a positive impact in sport and sport making a positive impact in society. One's going to balance out the other and suddenly you're going to have people going, you know what, this is too much like hard work. Yeah, no, I can I absolutely understand that. It's going to be really interesting to see how the next 10 years play out with this subject, I think. And then just a final question for me, I, I guess, James, the top programme and the sort of construct of it, is it still, my questions are really, is it still fit for purpose? Is 10 years too long to sign up to be a sponsor? What's your perspective on I, that? I, I, think, I think it's definitely under pressure. I think there are positives with it. I think there was, a, there was so at some point, there was positive inclusion of the IPC. So I think that does because it helps drive better um, inclusion within that and it, it helps with the IPC. I don't know whether the deal really helps, helps everyone in that deal. I think some people do better out of it than others. But I think that the problem is, is a 10-year deal is difficult. And I also think there's a point that 10 years does sometimes allow for maybe a little bit of laziness. Because you need to work, it's like, it's like a marriage. You've got to keep working at this. You've got to keep going. What's happening? Everything changes. And in the world that we're changing now, things are changing so much quicker than they ever, ever changed before from one year to the other, whether it's digital and this. And so unless you can change the way you structure, as I said before, if it's a cookie cutter, what I bought 10 years ago is not going to be any good to me in 10 years time. So how do you evolve that? How do you change that with that kind of level of investment? And I think they need to look at the way, and I think this is across the board, not just the IC. I think this is in sponsorship deals anyway. There has to be an evolution as to how you approach this because there is more sports than ever. There's sponsors that are in and out. I think you guys taught recently, there's certain categories that will get taken in and out. Eventually, you're going to run out of money. So, and what we've got to do is what happens is there's too much money going to the wrong places because we're cutting the grassroots piece. If we don't start to see that continuing in that way, we're not going to be able to have a sports industry because we're not going to have the people coming up that are going to be playing it. So, so I think, do look, I again, I still think the IC does a lot of great things, and I do think there are some real positives for long term deals if you can drive them in a way that evolve with what's happening in the world. And I think that's difficult because commercial guys will set this up in the same way. Here's what here's my target, this is how much money I need to get in, I need to sign the deal. After that, not my problem. It's a relationship team who sort that out. And I think that's where we've got to try and evolve that relationship. It's got to be more collaborative. We've got to talk more about partnership. And rather than here's a number and here it is. And I, I know for recently, and I've spoken to people recently, 
the commercial teams have gone off and signed deals, offered loads of stuff, and then the team who's delivering it go, I'm sorry, you've, you've agreed to what? And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, can you deliver that? Uh, <laughs> no. So I, I think there's got to be a lot more of that. We've got there's a lot more listening, a lot more of evolution, and, and we've got to get better at it. So that's... I've got a question about the difference between FIFA and, you, and the IOC in terms of just how culturally or how they, what, what it's like, you know, what, how a World Cup cycle differs from an Olympic one, from someone who has not been involved in either. So uh, my knowledge is probably a lot more based on the, uh, the Olympic kind of um, merry-go-round versus the FIFA one. But I think, for me, I think the IOC does try to actively make a difference in what it does. So I do believe that it plays a very difficult role. Do I think that it can play it better? I think that's the same with anything. Can we always do better? For me, I think I'm confused with FIFA at the moment. The recent Saudi visit, Saudi thing was like, I'm sorry, you you missed that? Like, and for me, I'm like, how did how did you even think that was... I mean, there's there's a bit about being you know, blind or deaf to what's going on around you. But that's fundamental. Like, as a, as a sponsor at that level, playing such a leadership role in one of the big, the biggest sports in the world, I, I'm just shocked by that. So, and the other thing, massive, the big cultural difference is FIFA and the local organising committee, the power still sits with FIFA, whereas with the IOC, it flips a little bit more. The local organising committee have sometimes more power as you get into the games. So there is a very difference in that. So at some point, as you get closer to the Olympics, maybe the IOC doesn't have as much power as maybe the local organising committee because you're in massive activation mode. Whereas with FIFA, you've still got, mind you, Qatar, there was a few last-minute things that happened in the run-up to that, which probably I don't know who was in control of. But again, you've still got a bit more of that power at the top. But I, I think FIFA has a lot to do in terms of improvement but again, that's my point of view, not to say I'm sure FIFA does a lot of things and they do invest a lot of things around the world and they do do good things. But again, it's about improvement. I just think especially in this day and age, you know, you can't make slip ups like that. I don't think. I was just looking at the IOC website before the call, James, and, and uh, you know, the one thing IOC does well now, I think, is is its governance. And everything is painfully slow because the consultation processes are thorough and they bring everybody in. And one has a clear sense that the governance structure in FIFA, no matter how it's described on paper, is actually very different because they have got people in charge of public affairs. They have got commercial teams. They have got marketing teams who will have all had a very clear opinion on, 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 the, on the sponsorship, but they were overruled. That's the only possible interpretation. They can't have missed it because, you know, I know Zug's not a small, a big place, but they, you know, they'll, they'll look outside of Zug. They'll, they, they can't have not known the implications. It's not possible. So one can only assume that, that, that this, the kind of the, the warnings or the, the cautions uh, or concerns were, were overruled. What do we think about women's football and FIFA, the relationship there? Because I've, I mean, I've just written something that's front of mind and I've, I've put it on the newsletter today. It just feels increasingly that it's just, it doesn't feel like it's the right place. But I don't know what the real world implications would be of women's football, inverted commas, stepping out and doing it outside of of that world. Is that totally naive and silly? Or is that something that you think is 
you know, I just look at some of the decisions. They're just the relationship with women's football just feels so strange and they make such odd decisions. And, you know, that I just don't think it fits. And it could ease, it's a really important time because actually it's a fragile thing that people are assuming is just going to blossom. But these things never just blossom. They have to be supported on a granular level. I just don't think it's in FIFA's DNA to do it properly. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think the whole women's sport thing is such an interesting one for me because uh, the one thing I would say is let's stop copying what men's sport did for many years because actually you can see that it's got problems in it. It's an interesting to see where could they step away from FIFA. And I think we've seen... On, in other sports, and I'll use, you know, the W Series, a good example as to what, what happens when you try and do something on the side that seemed to be together. And then suddenly, you know, there's still a culture at some of these federations at a level that is still, unfortunately, quite dated. And, and you know, just doesn't doesn't fit with where they're going. So I'd love to say, yes, let's go for it. Let's take women's sport. And I think they could do some fantastic things. And I, I really do believe that. And I, the good to see that the, the momentum is really picking up. It was always one of my fears with the pandemic that I thought women's sport would get damaged the most by it because it would go backwards. But actually, I think we're coming out in a very positive way from it. I agree with you. Do I feel it sits in the right place in FIFA? Uh, I don't know. I mean, Sally, you work in this area a lot. I'm sure you have a, a pretty strong perspective on it. Yeah, I think in my, you know, I've I've worked with FIFA in the past, and and they've got some cracking people there that you know really, really have tried to drive the the, the women's football agenda. But it's tough, you know. There's 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 a proportionality of football globally. The women's piece is minute relatively, but it's growing. And I think what I just felt, I don't know whether the word would be vindicated or not, but. But, you know, the women's Euros in the UK this last, you know, last year absolutely blew the lid off. Any perceptions that the game wasn't good enough, shouldn't be televised. You know, the crowd was just extraordinary. And I just felt that 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 was a complete milestone moment for women's sport. And I think there were a number of brands around the place who were suddenly waking up to the fact that, you know what, maybe they shouldn't just sponsor rugby. They should sponsor women's rugby as well, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, that's my two pen. pen no, I, and I, I agree with that. When you look at the audiences, and this is where I think it's so powerful with women's sport, is there's such a great opportunity to activate and do different things with the sponsorship. And they've opened up recently, what is it, a 1.8 million audience of just female sport fans. And, and that's huge. And that's like, great. How do you tap into that? Because you've, you open up then a whole world of different sponsors, different relationships, different values you know, value-based sponsorship is going to become much more important. So I think there's a whole world of that. And, and I think that's a super exciting part to be to be working in because that's where I think there's it's some really interesting stuff that's going to come up in the next couple of years. Kind of in a way, we're all facing this, this tension, aren't we, between the kind of the traditional model of success and sustainable growth. And, and quite often the tensions are not really reconcilable because we want to have the growth. We want to be, to you know, huge success, but actually to do it sustainably, it, it is a very different route. And quite often that doesn't mean there's a sustainable route to get to the same level of success. It means it's going to take you longer. And that's, you know, to some extent, like for, for Coke, you're still producing plastic you're still the produ- largest producer of plastic bottles and uh, and obviously that's your sort of it's it, within the business it's it's difficult very difficult to change quickly but and that's kind of linked to your business model and, and your profitability and 
but at the same time sustainability drives in the other direction so you know i think we're facing this every government every rights holder is is facing this and women's football is facing it because it might well be that to to grow sustainably means making painful decisions well generally it means making more painful decisions so but i'm going back to the plastics james did you see that as a kind of a growing problem for for coca-cola and olympics because you know it's been kind of obesity in the past obviously plastics is is rising it's risen rapidly up the agenda despite the fact that obesity hasn't gone anywhere obviously i'm i can only give you my point of view but uh on this as as a non-coke employee but uh, you know coke it is a style of packaging that has been demanded by consumers in the way that they want to consume stuff. So is Coke doing everything that it can to try and address this problem? Yes. But when you come back to this is about the difference. And when you talk about the sponsorship industries, you've got to evolve the model. You've got to evolve that. So as a business, and any business will be doing this, and you guys were talking about petrochemicals and stuff like that, they're all going to be starting to look at evolving that model. Why? Because if they don't, e.g. you can use the Kodak example, if you don't evolve with the time, you don't exist. So every business in the back of their mind will be going, where's the next stage? So yeah, they can't suddenly go, today we're going to stop doing this because that's just not realistic. Are they putting all of their efforts into evolving that and finding what the next thing is? Yes. The question for me is, is sponsorship doing the same? So is there is there a table, and this is where it should be, a table of smart people sitting around the table going, how do we all do this collectively to evolve the model rather than sticking in the same places, trying to do the same thing time and time again and expecting a different outcome, which, which quite frankly doesn't happen. So at some point, we've got to table a bigger deal that gets this on the table because it's going to impact the future of the, the, the sports industry. So hopefully that will happen. I think there's a few, there's a few smart people trying to put all this together. I believe I hear rumours. <laughs> we had Thierry Borra on here, and we had Ricardo Fort on here, both long-term Coke people. And what's it like leaving Coke? What's it like when you hand your badge in? And what's, what are you? And the question is leading to what you're doing next. But what, what's that? What's that process like? So I, I worked for Coke for 16 years. So it's fair to say I'm probably a little bit institutionalized. And I struggle when, when doing these kind of conversations. And when I talk to people is not saying us <laughs> versus them. So so there is definitely that takes a bit of coaching for yourself and a bit of change. But this is good. You make, you make it sound like the Shawshank Redemption. I <laughs> 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 Look, I, I loved it. And there's there's positives and negatives to it. You know, it, it's a great, it's an amazing brand. And I did lots of great things and stuff like that. But I also got to a point where I delivered a lot of things that I really felt I'd given everything that I could give and things like that. And, and the reason I left was for de- various different reasons. One one of them was a big personal reason to come back and, and help look after my mum. So there's that side of it. But then also just for me personally, I mean, if if all of the successes over those 16 years, it's time to challenge me and do things slightly differently. Where do I start to look at adding value in different places? Because, you know, Coke's fantastic, but it also can become, I'm not saying easy, but, you know, you can get used to it and it's, it's doing the same thing. So it, this was a chance for me to also see what else I can do outside of Coke. Uh, and that's, that's important. Okay, well, listen, Good luck with it. And we'll hear more, much more about that, I'm sure, as we 
as we go forward. But in the meantime, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed having other people ask questions. I'm sure the listeners will like that as well. So Sean and Sally, thank you very much for your time as ever. And James, James, thank you very much. Really enjoyed that. And uh, we'll get you back soon, I'm sure. Great. Thanks, guys. Good to talk to you.